Welcome to Kremlin File, everyone. And today we have a very special guest, retired Major General Paul Eaton. Hello, Paul. Welcome. Absolutely. Thank you very much for this invitation. Thank you. No, we're very, very pleased that you've come. Exactly. Paul, for everyone, just so that everybody understands exactly okay, what retired Major General is, what he's done, is that uh, he was a national security advisor, right, Paul, and director of Vet Voice Foundation, uh, which elevates vet voices in American democracy, an advisor to vote vets, which advocates on behalf of progressive veterans running for office and also Gold Star family. So we're so, so pleased uh, that you're here, okay, with us today, speaking about the war, okay, on Ukraine. And in a tweet, Paul, you wrote that, this was in a tweet that we found on February the 28th. I mean, I follow your account and I follow, right, all of your comments and everything. And this this one hit me in particular. And you said, to borrow from President Bush, 43 lexicon, Putin has seriously misunderestimated Ukraine, NATO, the US, EU, and sanctions. For a trained KGB officer, this is a shocking failure. Okay, and I thought that was really, really uh, interesting the way that you put that. And I mean, I did a bit of military studies at university, and I remember that our professor always used to say to us, look, in a campaign, in a war, there's always one side that underestimates the power, right, of who, you know, the other army that they have, and also overestimates their own power and what they can do. So there's always this, let's say we looked at a lot of failures in battle and different things. But what we, what we wanted to ask was, first of all, let's start a bit with what the state of the battle is right now, what the war on Ukraine is right now, um, you know, what, uh, what is going on, just a very, very brief overview. And then I want to ask you really, did, you know, do you agree with this statement? Did they underestimate, you know, what, why are the Russians, um, let's say, not doing as well, or if that's the case? And also the Ukrainian side, right? The Ukrainians and their, how they're fighting this. Okay. So let's start off with that. All right. So what we see right now, the, uh, the Russians have reverted to a uh, form of uh, back to World War II. Uh, they have failed in the logistics arena. So we have tanks running out of gas, soldiers without ammunition, food, water. Uh, we've had all those bad things that come from a bad logistics operation. Uh, everybody can be a tactician. Professionals are logisticians, is the saying that we have in the Army. Uh, the, the failure to be able to execute combined arms maneuver, integrating uh, infantry, tanks, field artillery, missilery, aircraft, uh, this has been an absolutely stunning surprise for the world and uh, the russians have uh, have failed in this uh, arena what that leaves them with is indiscriminate anti-civilian rockets missiles artillery and uh, they are exacting uh, the deaths of uh, of many innocents hmm. so this is a uh, 
this is a surprise to many of us. Yeah, yeah. It's funny you brought up logistics because my professor used to say to me, logistics, logistics, logistics. You know, Indeed. This is how that's, you know, one of the, the perhaps would you say that it's one of the most important things in battle? Are there other factors as well besides logistics? Uh, the, the reason that uh, Western armies tend to do very well is that uh, the individual soldier has great faith in his leadership and his, uh, his nation, and that uh, the individual soldier, if he's hurt, he will be rescued. He will be tended to uh, medically. He's not going to run out of ammunition. We won't let them run out of food and water. Uh, we will provide them the wherewithal to, uh, to do their duties on the battlefield. So that, that faith that, uh, that the NATO armies, that, uh, that the Anglo-Saxon armies, the, the armies that uh, really do understand the value of the individual soldier, that's what keeps uh, that young man and woman going. Okay. Yeah, and here, I mean, we've seen, I think, what, we're at five or seven generals who have been killed in less than three yeah. weeks. I mean, it's it's yeah. incredible to see, and these are generals who fought in self, several theaters, you know? Indeed. Yeah. And when you start seeing very senior leaders die on the battlefield, uh, mm. it's because they have been forced to do and take on roles that Western armies uh, delegate down to much younger folks. Uh, generals need to see the battlefield. Uh, it is uh, possible, you know, I, I was on the outskirts of Fallujah during the, uh, just before uh, the Marines had to go in. And I was there with three other uh, general officers. We were uh, vulnerable at that point. Uh, something could have happened, but it's very, very rare that you will see that level of exposure. And what that means is uh, the, the Russians don't have the non-commissioned officer corps that uh, we in the United States and Western armies enjoy. Uh, they, the fact that senior leaders have to go forward is an indicator of a serious lack of morale and competence at the junior ranks. Okay, so they're throwing them. No, they need to go forward. Indeed. To bring the, the, the action forward. Okay, got it. And I wanted to ask about the intelligence. Do you think at all that maybe Putin and whoever was gathering intelligence, right, for this thing, that whether there was a failure in intelligence on the part of, let's say, the Russian intelligence services? Olga, would that be the FSB and the SVR? Which, which uh, agencies take care of that? Well, I mean, there is chatter. There is chatter. The fifth director at an FSB, you know, has been put under house arrest, and they were the ones mm -hmm. who, you know, uh, would have prepared the political situation on the ground in Ukraine and then provided it to military who would then provide it to Putin. So, yeah. So this could also be an intelligence failure as well. Well... Um, yeah, I, I, I mean, yeah. it's a combination. Go ahead, Paul. No, I, I was just going to agree with you that uh, uh, the, the Russians just uh, had no idea of the, uh, the yeah. psychology. They, they failed to understand the nature of the Ukrainian citizen. And they failed to understand how much 
they feel to be Ukrainian citizens and that they will fight for their homeland far harder than ever anticipated by the Russians. How would you um, uh, judge the performance of Ukrainian military? Yeah, let's go to Ukrainians now. Yeah, yeah, who is completely outgunned and outplaned and, you know, and... And really, uh, facing one of the bigger, biggest armies in in um, the world. Indeed, uh, when we create a soldier, uh, the 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 way I uh, talk about it, uh, there there are three major factors that uh, that you develop in in a soldier, a successful future soldier. You develop uh, him or her uh, physically that. Uh, that self-confidence that you get from physical fitness, that you really can leap tall buildings in a single bound, uh, that we impart training, that uh, the soldier is very, very confident in the use of his weapons, the how he acts within the context of a, uh, of a fire team or rifle squad, uh, speaking of infantry or a uh, artillery uh, cannon uh, crew. So all, all that's Part of the training package and the more training you have the more successful the soldier will be the more confident he will be and then there's the moral component uh, what the british call the uh the moral component and uh, something that the british army has imparted to many armies in the world and that is back to the belief that uh, the chain of command is going to be there for him that the the soldier believes in his country his constitution and the civilian leadership that uh, that we have, all that goes into creating a a far more noble and a far more capable soldier. And we have seen the uh, Russian army completely outclassed by the Ukrainians, and uh, the Ukrainian army to uh, to a degree that we just uh, did not anticipate. They've taken learning uh, how to use weapons that they have not used before: the javelin the uh, Stinger missile, uh, to, to great effect. We've seen them uh, take Turkish drones and use them in anti-armor ambushes. Uh, the, Ukraine, the Ukrainian army has learned very, very quickly. They are very courageous, and uh, they're not giving up. Yeah, no, no. Well, they've also been fighting for eight years as well, right, Indeed. Paul? So this also comes into, right? It comes into the factoring of also their success, right? I mean, this is indeed, you know, this is part of it. If you if you've been through conflict, uh, new conflict tends to, you know, there is a uh, stress inoculation that happens in training and in warfare, and uh, during World War II, uh, if if a pilot survived the first five engagements was the general measure. There was a very high likelihood that that, or a much higher likelihood that that pilot would survive the war. So if you have battlefield experience, new battlefield challenges are easier to manage for the soldier in question. Um, Paul, um, so as we saw, because Russia's initial strategy was to take, you know, key cities in a few days, 
clearly that failed and they haven't been able to get one city yet. Um, and as we see it going on, we're now like, you know, going into week four, we see Russia turning to deadly tactics. And now they are specifically targeting civilian homes. Like in Mariupol, they destroyed 80% of the houses. Um, they're targeting humanitarian corridors and basically committing war crimes that is being played out on, you know, regular media and social media. We've seen this strategy before in Syria, in Libya, in Chechnya, and you and I had done a Twitter spaces where you talked about um, your encounter with the Soviet army. Can you tell us about this? So I'll, I'll give two snapshots, with the, actually with the same Russian unit, uh, the same, it was a Soviet unit, but born of, of Russia, uh, the 27th Guards Motorized Rifle Division. So in the 70s and 80s, the, the army, the, the uh, Soviet army opposite uh, my division, I, I was a young captain commanding a, uh, a, uh, a mechanized team with tanks. And uh, opposite me was a Russian captain of, of uh, equipped with with tanks and with uh, with BMP and uh, we believed that uh, the Russians on the other side of the border were ten feet tall that we had to work very very hard to make sure that we were going to defeat them if they ever attacked. Obviously, it turned out not to be <laughs> so. Uh, but roll the the time forward and uh, to 1994. So. I, I commanded that company, 77, 78. Uh, 1994, I'm working with the 27th Guards Motorized Rifle Division as a colonel, and I had a, uh, a Russian airborne background uh, colonel uh, who was my counterpart, and we got along very, very well. And uh, the Russian soldiers uh, were not particularly... Uh, well trained, but they were they were engaging young men, and uh, our men and the Russian soldiers got along very well. And the difference in the units was that we would transmit to our soldiers the commander's intent, and the, the our individual soldiers would understand what the desired outcome was to be for a given operation. Uh, that did not take place with the Russian soldier. The Russian soldier we found to be uh, far less informed than our guys, and that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, there, there was an absence of non-commissioned officers. So we witnessed officers having to do what young sergeants do, young corporals do in the American Army. And... Uh, that just uh, that distributed command and control. That that distributed initiative. The the allowing for initiative by young men and women uh, makes Western armies far more potent. And uh, that that learning from 1994 uh, is bearing out today in what we are seeing with the Russian performance in Ukraine. Hmm. Yeah, it's fun. Can I just, um, I have one question because I wanted to hook up with what you're saying on the 
the chain of command and also communications, because you wrote this on March the 19th, the center of gravity in this fight is the Russian people. The vector to influence this outcome is obviously communications. Uh, now you're talking about communications, right? At the, on the battlefield themselves, right? Taking initiative, being, you know, um, let's we say, we can talk uh, communications uh, at the tactical level and communications writ large. The uh, we give radios to individual soldiers, eighteen-year-old, nineteen-year-old individual soldiers. Uh, they can communicate with each other, and they can communicate up. The chain of command obviously can communicate left, right, and downward and upward. There. When I, I mentioned communications uh, with respect to the Russian people, uh, the, the, I have greater faith in the Russian people writ large as a civilization, as a culture, based on what I have seen over the years, than the trigger puller, lanyard puller, button pushing uh war criminal is achieving in Ukraine. Uh, the, the Russian people are a noble and civilized people, and we have to reach out to them. We have to reach out to the mothers of all these soldiers in Ukraine and uh, give them a clear picture of what's really going on because right now the Russian people have been sold a bill of goods that uh, uh, that is untrue and uh, we need to you know I, I don't know if it's you know Starlink satellites uh, that we populate these guys uh, over Russia uh, by Elon Musk he just got a rocket off with uh, I think 150 of these things uh, so we we need to get communications to the Russian citizen. And to add to Paul, there is questions now being asked by the Russian mothers um, and just, uh, you know, the Russian families of what is happening because they've lost communications with their family members inside Ukraine. So they are beginning to ask questions and, you know, to deaf ears because they're not getting anything from the investigative committee or the military, nothing. Mm. So yeah, we they, talked about um, this. and on yeah. Ukraine's behalf, they have, you know, set up a hotline for uh, captured Russian soldiers for any family member who wants them back that they can come to Kiev and, you know, collect their family member, wow. which at the same time, they could see what is happening yeah. on the ground and yeah. that what Putin is feeding them is a complete yeah. lie. So the just getting information to them that is you no know, factual information. That's the that's such an important thing right now. Yeah. 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 No, absolutely. I agree. Yeah. We have to get that information. Um, for several weeks we've seen Russia laying the groundwork, and I've been documenting a lot of it for the use of chemical weapons for, you know. Uh, that Ukrainians um, have rigged nuclear plants. We know that Russia, like within the first week, took a siege of two nuclear plants and they um, uh, took hostage the people working inside the plants and we haven't had communication with them. 
Um, where do you see this going? Because Russia, again, yesterday said that the West and um, Ukrainian uh, nationalists, and um, they had two different reports come out from the defense ministry, which are lies, that the West and Ukrainian nationalists are um, preparing an attack on Lviv, and another one they started naming locations in Sumy. Um, where do you see this going and what would happen as far as the United States and European reaction if uh, Russia does use chemical weapons or, God forbid, even, a, you know, causes a nuclear accident? Uh, chemical weapons are not a militarily, militarily uh, useful weapon. Uh, you might surprise a unit, but they will immediately protect themselves. Uh, so you might get uh, casualties in a first strike, uh, unlikely that it will happen again. Uh, we've seen the use of chemicals in World War I, and all armies quickly adapted to, uh, uh, to defend themselves from, from these terrible weapons. And uh, so you, you didn't see uh, chemical weapons in use uh, during World War II. Now, you've seen chemical weapons used in Syria uh, against unprotected populations, unprotected civilians. And uh, they are a weapon of terror. Uh, they will cause people to, uh, to leave uh, the uh, objective area that uh, is under attack from chemical weapons simply because that's their only defense is to, is to run away from the weapon. And uh, that's, uh, if, if, if Mr. Putin were to use chemical weapons and we, if we were to see civilian casualties, and it's, they're gruesome weapons, and the effects on humans is, uh, is, is appalling. And if we were to see that, what would NATO do? And U.S., of course, a component of NATO, the, the largest uh, size-wise component of uh, NATO, uh, I, I would not be surprised to see a visceral reaction to the use of chemicals against Ukrainian uh, population. Uh, and... Uh, I, I believe that you would see some military activity, perhaps short of invading Russia, perhaps short of delivery of munitions in the Russian territory. But you might see uh, anti-ship activity. You might see uh, uh, a move on the Baltic uh, port of Kaliningrad, and perhaps in the Far East, in you know, Sakhalin, and out, you know, just, you know, strategic, uh, uh, a strategic demonstration to the Russians that uh, this could get very, very serious very, very quickly. And uh, this threat of the use of nuclear weapons uh is an interesting bit of psychology. When we war game use of nuclear weapons, it's a, it's a psychological endurance test. And because if you, and the, the book 20, I think it's the book 2034 that uh, 
uh, recently came out. Uh, it's a novel about uh, a uh, war between China and the United States. And uh, what happens if things are not going well, things are not going well in Ukraine, uh, and you uh, fire a tactical nuclear weapon against a city of 50,000 people, say, just throw that out there, 50,000 people. Would the country, if it was a nuclear armed country, like Great Britain or France, uh, it, it would be very dangerous to do that to the United States because uh, we still have enough nuclear weapons, even after all the reductions that, uh, that have gone on, that uh, a first strike would be absolutely devastating. Now, part of the problem with, with nuclear warfare, if you don't have enough weapons uh, to kill your opponent's nuclear weapons, take out his submarines, take out his bomber fleets, take out his uh, land-based missiles, uh, then that's a counter force approach in the use of nuclear weapons. That may push you into a euphemism called counter value. That's actually killing cities. And uh, the United States has that capacity. Russia certainly has that capacity. Uh, China has been building up their nuclear stockpile. Uh, they've, they've got some range issues, uh, but all, all this could very, very quickly go high order very bad for humanity, obviously. Uh, so all the nuclear war games that we had involved the use of battlefield nuclear weapons in the beginning. We, the American army used to have, and the Russians as well, backpack nukes to, uh, to, to drop bridges, to, uh, to uh, cut lines of communication. Uh, we, we, had, we had a nuclear mortar in uh, in the fifties, because we, we just you know it, it was called the Pentomic Army, and and we, but even when I was a a captain, the artillery unit that supported my unit was nuclear capable, one hundred and fifty five millimeter uh, in in diameter uh, uh, weapon that is fired from. Uh, from a uh, a howitzer, and we're we're talking a a, nuke, a a a hardened howitzer that could deliver this weapon up to eighteen twenty kilometers, and once that happens, then the other side will use a similar weapon, and it very quickly escalates into a full blown nuclear exchange. And it's that breakdown of mutually assured destruction that happens, MAD. If MAD breaks down, then the deterrent value of nuclear weapons fails and you will have an absolutely mm -hmm. catastrophic event for mankind. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's what I think most people, it's the first thing, people who don't... Um, don't know much about the war or what is happening the very the very mention of a nuclear threat of any kind is really really disturbing 
uh, they don't understand as what you're saying, you know, the different escalation and, and things like that. They're, they're very, very scared. I mean, this is what I'm getting from a lot of people that are just normal people that no don't know much. And Russia. And Russia. Yeah. 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 Exactly. And Russia is doing a very good job exactly. of uh, spreading well, that's the what... disinformation online exactly. and using it for psyops on social yeah. media because like every other yeah, every other comment I see in my, you know, tweets is, "Oh, but Russia's a nuclear power. Or Russia's a nuclear power." You know, and I'm like, "Okay, I'm not talking about nuclear. Yeah. I'm talking about, you know, civil uh, civilian yeah. building being bombed." Also like, because I'm sure that, well, the the arms that they have now are destructive without even getting into nuclear. Right? I mean, the the Indeed. The, the power and the reach of what is happening, we see it you know, every day of what's going on. So Indeed. Uh, you know, we don't even have to get into that, unfortunately. Speaking of speaking of uh, powerful weapons, CNN yesterday said that um, U.S. officials um, said that Russia used uh, hypersonic mm-hmm. uh, missiles in Ukraine. Can you talk to us about that? And, you know, what, like, because we've heard so much about the dangers of hypersonic missiles, and Russia has threatened us with hypersonic missiles over the years. Uh, you know, what is the impact of it inside so, of Ukraine? I've, I haven't seen any classified information regarding hypersonic uh, weapons, but if you, if you have a missile that reaches, uh, you know, nine or 10,000 kilometer an hour uh, speed, 5,000 mile an hour weapon, it's hard to knock it down. Uh, cruise missiles, uh, 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 much slower uh, missiles, uh, some, uh, some can be brought down with air defense uh, systems that are in play right now. S-300, S-400, uh, Patriot, uh, uh, maybe even Stinger against, uh, against a, uh, a cruise missile that's uh, moving at uh, 400 knots. But uh, the... The, the hypersonic, uh, the only real value, I think, is that it's uh, very tough to, uh, to bring down, which is, a, which is a, obviously a consideration. But uh, there's been a lot of hype around these things, and I'm just not sure uh, if it's justified. I, I don't know that. Okay. 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 I just have a question, actually, yeah, before we we finish, well, let's say the only other question that I wanted to ask was, is, are you getting any any indications at all, Paul, of Belarus and whether they will be stepping in and if that will change things tremendously or not? Because, you know, it depends on the kind of troops they're going to be sending and their preparedness and their material, I'm sure, right? The kind of kit they have and stuff like that. But what is your opinion on that? Do you know anything or would like to express uh, your comments anytime on you Belarus? Open up another front, in, anytime you open up another front uh, in, a, uh, in a combat zone, uh, that's one more place that, uh, that the defending uh, military needs to, to focus on. So it diverts attention from, from Russia. Uh, but you know, President Zelensky today w- on the uh, Fareed Zakaria program uh, said that uh, they believe that they took missile fire 
from Belarus in the beginning days of this invasion. So I don't, I don't, I don't know. I did not know that. Uh, I assume it's, you know, the, the president is speaking from, you know, a true understanding of what happened. Uh, but we've also seen Russia ask uh, for assistance from China, from Syria. He's using Chechens because he's short manpower, uh, which is hard to believe. I, I, I just, it, we, we keep finding out more bad things that are going on in the Russian military. So uh, to, for Mr. Putin to, uh, to press Belarus into the fight, uh, I, that would be unfortunate for Belarus and because it's not going to, uh, to change the outcome. Yeah, it's very interesting because we are seeing, you know, more and more exposed about the Russian military. And I think it's partly, I don't know if you would agree, because they've never fought such a widespread battle. Like normally they've, you know, assisted in Syria or they, you know, uh, in Chechnya, but it was never so widespread of like, you know, planning to take over a country. And I think because it was so widespread, we're seeing... And the morale and just, you know, all the conditions, the lack of communication. Um, we're seeing, like, you know, the Russian military that was, like, feared is now, now it's like, you know, like, yeah. what happened? This is what, what the world was worried about, you know. My final question, what do you see happening? Where do you see this going? What can the U.S. and Europe do more to support Ukraine and to help them, you know, Fight and what also would happen if, because um, the uh, foreign minister Lavrov had threatened, echoing on a prior threat, that if uh, that our deliveries to Ukraine are legitimate targets. So, how long do you see that corridor open that we can still get um, weapons inside of Ukraine? And what else can we do, and you know, to help stop this mass killing of civilians? Uh, we need to increase the uh the number of systems going into ukraine uh and we need to uh have alternate paths so that uh if if they come under attack that uh uh that we're still getting what we need into ukraine to support uh the ukrainian military uh we need to expand uh the use of anti-ship missiles uh we, we we've got Russian ships firing uh, cruise missiles with impunity right now. I think if we send several of those ships to the bottom of the ocean, uh, we we would be uh, well served. And uh, uh, that's that is not a big reach here. Uh, Norwegians uh, 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 have a have a pretty good system that uh, I, I think I think the American Navy uses and. Uh, if you if you knock down a couple of ships, uh, uh, that would be uh, terrific. I think that we need to increase the threat from ground-based uh, anti-air missile systems. Uh, I, I saw a, a U.S. senator state that uh, the S-300 is now deployed into uh, Ukraine. Uh, and now there's discussion of the S-400, which is a more potent system than the S-300, uh, perhaps coming from Turkey. I mean, the Turks have uh, have done 
you know, a lot of good for uh, for Ukraine and uh, with their uh, with their drones. And we're seeing perhaps switchblade drones coming from the United States going into uh, to assist. So it's uh, the, this grinding attrition warfare that's going on right now will get worse for the Russians. And the response with artillery and missiles will be worse for the Ukrainian uh, uh, population. So I, I believe that the uh, best outcome is a negotiated outcome that uh, uh, we give something to, uh, to President Putin and we give peace to President Zelensky. We achieve a ceasefire that becomes uh, durable and that uh, Putin can say, I have achieved my military objectives, we're going home, don't make me come back. Right. Uh, and then we, uh, we start a, a Marshall Plan to bring Ukraine back online, that uh, we help them rebuild, use a lot of Russian money to do it. And uh, we, we just, uh, that, that I believe is, uh, is the best outcome. I, this grinding attrition warfare is, uh, cannot, cannot last. I mean, it just, it, it can't last. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much yeah. for providing your invaluable expertise on this. And yeah. God knows we all have so many questions yeah. on where this is going and, you know, Olga, you're very kind, very kind. Thank you very much. Okay. So people can follow Paul at Paul D Eaton five, two. Thank you, Paul. Thank you so much for your time. Well, have a good rest of your Sunday. Thank you very much. Hey, everybody. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and please visit our website, kremlinfile.com. This is a Bunker Crew Media production hosted by Olga Lautman and me, Monique Camara, with executive producers Marley Clements, Jack Bryan, Grant DeSimone, Ben Brett, and Jordi Micellis of Midas Media with associate producers Ruby Frankel and Sarah Metz. Theme music by Oreste Camarra. Sound editing and mixing by Joy Ellett. Subscribe to Kremlin File wherever you listen to podcasts.